welcome to Hammerama, the new podcast which views the world of hammer horror from opposite sides of the earth. I'm Al of the Shell Tribe from New Zealand. And I'm Stephen of the Rock Tribe from Maryland. And our opening track was the intro to the amazing House of the Gorgon by the equally amazing Reba Clark. Hammerama is part of Stephen's award-nominated Diecast movie podcast. And as such, the subject of our discussions will similarly be decided by the cast of a die. Steve Turek, the dinosaur hunter, shouted, Akita! And threw a five, which is Hammer's prehistoric epics. And so we journey back to one million years BC. One million years BC erupts on the screen with volcanic excitement. One million years BC, when the earth parted, and the mountains fell. Primitive man and monstrous beasts fought each other to inherit the earth. Not since time began has the primitive scene been captured for the screen with such imaginative realism. Behold man one million years B.C. Introducing the fabulous Raquel Welch, the sensational star discovery of this or any other year in one million years B.C. See her as Loana the Fair One, who deserted her tribe and risked her life to follow Tumac of the Rock People. John Richardson as Tumac, as big and strong as the beasts he fought for survival. Nupondi the Wild One whom no man could resist. See the fascinating, strange, and fearful creatures who roamed and ruled the Earth a million years B.C. The Brontosaurus, a moving mountain of flesh and bone. The Pterodactyl, a flying reptile with giant teeth. The flesh-eating Allosaurus. The Triceratops, a horned dinosaur in battle with the savage Ceratosaurus. You will share the unending thrills and excitement of a world of primitive wonders, of primeval terror and savagery. You will indeed live in another world, in another time, as the centuries fall back to reveal the Earth one million years B.C. Serial animal rights abuser Tumac of the Rock Tribe, John Richardson, is thrown out of home after killing the first of his many victims, a warthog. Heading for the seaside, he continues his disregard for the animal kingdom by injuring a giant iguana's tongue with a rock, startling a giant spider, and worrying a passing brontosaurus. After obstructing an innocent giant turtle in its efforts to reach the sea, he is pulled to safety by the beautiful Loana, Raquel Welch, and is taken in by her people, the Shell Tribe. However, Tumac can't help himself and kills a fish before murdering a young Allosaurus who wanders into their camp. Finding himself banished again, he returns to the Rock Tribe, accompanied by Loana, to keep an eye on him. Unfortunately, he still becomes responsible for the death of a ceratosaur by distracting it at a key moment during its friendly tussle with a triceratops. Discovering herself less than welcome in the Rock Tribe's hood, Loana manages to defeat Tumac's former girlfriend Nupondi, Martin Beswick, with a damp tea towel. But unfortunately, hostilities escalate between the two tribes. 
Will our distant ancestors wipe each other out or combine forces against their dangerous environment? Will Tumac ever learn to be kind to animals? And will Loana make better relationship choices in the future? Does that sound like the film that you've just seen, Stephen? That sounds like the, the third-party perspective of the animals. <laughs> <laughs> so, would you like to give your own thoughts on this prehistoric epic? That, you, you make it really tough to follow up with that kind of synopsis of the movie. I think that is the most unique synopsis of this movie that's probably ever out there, or ever will be out there. <laughs> well, I've seen this movie before. I saw this when I was growing up, and I enjoy it. I love stop-motion effects. I love Ray Harryhausen. Of course, in this movie, not only do we have the Ray Harryhausen effects, but we also have unusual, in my opinion, for Harryhausen, he had real animals, a lizard, a spider, and so on, in the movie also. That's not normally Ray's thing, but I think his whole part, purpose was maybe to have some realistic animals, so that way when you saw the dinosaurs, it would have more realism to it. I really don't think he really needed to do that, because I always love the stop motion with the take of it, whether it's realistic or not. Dinosaurs and humans were never together anyway, so this is totally unrealistic concept, so... <laughs> Why not, you know, so it's really, if you can buy that, you should be able to buy whatever he puts up there. Um, the movies, I think, is interesting to me in that um, it's lack of English dialogue because you have the narration at the beginning, and after that, it's no dialogue that we can understand. I mean, we start to figure out some of the words from the repeat usage and them explaining them to each other when they're the two tribes, different members meet each other. And I think this fits in exactly with what I talk about with films, with Don Chafee doing this, is that you should be able to watch a film and understand what's going on without dialogue. Just like a silent movie. All movies should really be this way, where you get the gist of what is happening. And I like that. I enjoy that. That's a good point. It's just made me think, Stephen, uh, Don Chafee was directing the human actors to get that sort of performance from them. But at the same time, Ray Harryhausen was directing his own creations. Once again, they don't speak, but you can tell by their gestures, their movements, exactly what's going on in their, in their tiny little reptile minds. I agree with you, Al. And Ray Harryhausen was also directing the actors and how they're supposed to respond to things they can't see and he's holding up this like head like look at the head and and they're all getting the giggles sometimes and they have to control themselves because they, they're looking at nothing <laughs> except ray on a back of a pickup truck holding a head up <laughs> on yeah, a stick yeah <laughs> that's acting <laughs> good point Stephen. i'd like to start with a quote if i can oh of course okay here we go bronzed and athletic Raquel looked like she liked being outside. She looked like she didn't need a protector. In that poster, she is skimply attired and way sexualized, but she is also muscular and capable looking, in equal parts defiant and wild. Now that's actually a quote from Karina Longworth, film critic, author, and journalist, and I'm going to be talking more about her later. But the point I'm making and I'm basically putting this on the table now, is that Raquel Welsh's appearance, sometimes described as an exaggerated beauty and physique, is widely acknowledged to hit most male, and no doubt some female, libidos like a ton of bricks. And this is a woolly mammoth in the room which can't be ignored. 
So hopefully by putting it out there now, any future reference we make throughout the episode is not going to be just interpreted as sad middle-aged male musings, but rather a universally accepted and celebrated essential element of this film. And so One Million Years BC brings as one of the 20th century's most enduring images, Raquel Welsh as Loana, which launched her career and has continued to influence pop culture ever since. From my favourite Doctor Who companion Leela, to the Jungle Girl comic genre referenced recently by Josh Kennedy in his new movie Saturnalia, to the relatively modern cinema phenomenon of the action heroine, Loana's impact is very much still felt in 2022 AD. But at this point, I'd also like to add something about Raquel Welsh, which really impressed me on this viewing. And that is the fact that she's not just a physical presence. She gives a sincere and convincing performance. She acts. She's always been an actress foremost, not just a symbol. And she conveys that even in this movie. I know what you're bringing up with the um, the total change in culture through society. People that had never even seen the film. Yeah, I agree. She does, she does a lot of good acting. And one of the things that I really appreciated with her character is she rescues Tumac. Exactly. From the turtle. She's the one who's able to stop the killing or mediate the fighting. So she's the peacemaker. Well, her whole tribe is a lot smarter than the rock tribe, which I wonder why you put me on the rock tribe. Hmm? (laughs) (laughs) That actually goes back to what I was saying about the modern uh, phenomenon of the action heroine. I think you can uh, trace that right back to Loana of the Shell Tribe. Uh, Something that I forgot to mention. We also have gorgeous location filming in the Canary Islands, which which really does give this film the feeling of an epic. But as entertainment, it's my feeling that One Million Years BC became a phenomenal success for Hammer because it managed to tap into a um, a counterculture zeitgeist, which was very much alive in the in the 1960s. But I suspect that this film might struggle to find a general audience today. I think so. I think compared to films that come out nowadays, it's a lot slower in the pacing mm. than a lot of films. And I've seen a lot of Don Chafee's films, and, and there's, a, there's quite a few that have really good pacing. There's some of them that are a little slower in the pacing. And um, <laughs> what I enjoy about it is you really get an idea of the tribal life. Yeah. By spending an extra time, you're able to understand it even more. Because since they're not using languages that we can understand and that kind of thing, I think it makes it even more interesting. Mm, agreed. So did you want to move on to your favorite part, Stephen? Oh, sure. Well, automatically say anything with Ray Harryhausen automatically would be one of my favorite parts. So agreed. I'm just going to pick one Ray Harryhausen part, and that is the turtle. Uh, I just love the turtle scene, <sighs> the turtle effect, the turtle everything is, is wonderful. And I also like that scene in that moment because you have Raquel Welch's character saving John Richardson's character, Tumac, and do that for a stranger. And I think that, that sets the whole tone for the differences between the tribe. One tribe, the rock tribe, leaves people that are hurt behind. Well, it's their fault, yes. they're gone. And this other tribe goes to help other people. The shell tribe respecting their elders, following their lead. And you can still see a lot of that today. 
you know, feeding back into that uh, almost documentary feel that you that you mentioned. For my own favourite part, like you, I love everything that Ray Harryhausen has ever done. And obviously his work in this film is still magnificent, even in our current CGI-drenched times. But my favourite moment is actually Tumac and Loana's almost encounter with the primitive troglodytes in the underground cavern. It's telling to me that having fearlessly faced off against ferocious dinosaurs, our heroes are absolutely terrified of these less evolved distant cousins in this scene. They don't even want to risk being noticed by them. And I like to in interpret this utter dread as a sort of primal revulsion of this more primitive state that maybe the shell and the rock tribes have only recently evolved from. And perhaps there's some race memory stirring a sort of self-disgust in the knowledge that the bestial creatures that they're hiding from were once themselves. It suddenly turns this adventure film into a horror film. And also ties back to racial memories with Quatermass in the Pit, mm. our second episode. All right, I'm going to move us on to the reviews. As usual, we like to pick a review of the particular film we're talking about, which comes from that same year. And then we're going to contrast that with a review which has come out as recently as possible. So I have one from December 1966, the year of the release. Uh, this is from Rich Gold of Variety. And he says... The whole thing is good-humoured, full of action, commercial nonsense, but the Moppets will love it, and older male Moppets will probably love Miss Welch. Okay, so no surprises there. Nope. Moving, <laughs> nope. <laughs> Moving on to uh, 2016. Uh, Kate Muir of The Times in Britain writes... Seeing nowadays, it is a kitschy retro scream. Yet, as dinosaurs and giant sea turtles roam the volcanic earth in one million years BC, this is also a chance to appreciate the early work of the great special effects pioneer Ray Harryhausen. So those are sort of both aspects of the film which generally agree are the main attractions. Oh, I agree with that. I mean, they, they hit both of them, which seems to be the 60s, what everybody would seem to be going for. And I think nowadays a lot of people go back to it for the Ray Harryhausen and stuff more than anything else. So shall we move on to the film poster, Stephen? Oh, yes. What are your thoughts about that? Yeah, so the poster that Alistair picked out, which will be go on our Facebook site, you'll be able to see it next to our Alistair's excellent little promo poster for our episode. This summarizes exactly what the first critic was talking about, you know. Oh, uh, I think so. <laughs> Dinosaurs and Raquel Welch. And I don't know necessarily in that order, judging by the size of Raquel Welch in the poster. Because she <laughs> is bigger than every dinosaur in there by far. <laughs> it's almost like the 50-foot woman. <laughs> Indeed. Reminds me of the little toy plastic dinosaurs that I had and still have. This is a poster, if I had the money and somebody had a nice copy of this poster, this would be a poster I'd love to have. And I love the dinosaurs. This is the weirdest thing. I said this to Alistair earlier. She's a beautiful woman, great actress, but the dinosaurs there, you got you have them all. I mean, it's, it, it gives you an idea of what you're to expect in this movie if you were going to go see it. You're going to see her, you're going to see the dinosaurs, you're going to see some action. What The only thing it doesn't really show you is the tribal life that's going on, the parts in between. 
But I think otherwise the poster I think really does justice to the movie and I love the the big red letters one million years BC. This poster would draw me into the theater. What about you, Al? Ray Harryhausen himself has has good naturedly bemoaned the fact that his dinosaurs are minuscule on the poster compared to the main element, which we've just discussed. I believe I know what your merchandise pick is going to be, so I'm not going to talk about Raquel too much. I will say that, interestingly, this is the first of two paintings that the peerless Tom Chantrell made of Loana in this iconic pose. He then rendered her again in exactly the same pose for a poster double billing one million years BC with Hammer's She starring Ursula Andress. And I do love how the dinosaur encounters those tiny little dinosaurs at the bottom are depicted in almost chronological order when they occur in the film along the base of the poster. We're going to move on to the meeting the stars section. And Stephen, this is definitely your time to shine. So take it away. Well, thank you, Al. I like how you give me no pressure at all. (laughs) (laughs) But I've been fortunate enough to meet Martine Beswick many times at different conventions, Monster Bash, the Mid-Atlantic Nostalgia Convention, and I had the utmost honor to interview her for about 90 minutes Mm. the other day, and I tell you, it was a pleasure to talk to her about her career, her Hammer movies, and other movies that she's been in, and um, for listeners, I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the stuff she said, but the next episode after this is the interview with her, so if you want to hear everything in its entirety, please tune in for that. I find it funny because she always seems to be in these movies with Hammer that involves her fighting. You know, in this one, she fights Raquel Welch. In Prehistoric Women, she fights. In James Bond movie, her the first James Bond movie, she fights. And she told me her nickname was Battling Beswick. <laughs> but because her dance background, she was able to perform very good fight scenes, you know, which is unusual for women of that time they weren't usually given the opportunity but here they have a lot of athleticism going on and she really sells it i don't know when she's doing these fight scenes if she's working with the other actress or if she's working with a stunt person or a mixture but it seems from what martine was saying she was the one doing all of her own stuff and you just enjoy it and she had a fun time and she had a interesting talk about John Richardson. Um, of course, they had a relationship, and she talks about how this all started. And she's a wonderful woman. Everything she likes to do, she likes to have fun with. And that was almost like the key word for the interview. She likes to have fun and enjoy herself and do projects that, where she's with family, projects where she's working with other actresses, where she'd call them sisters kind of thing. So she just enjoys life. She's a treasure. And if you ever get to meet her, go up to her. Don't be scared. Because she has that intimidating look. (laughs) I mean, it came for you off, but she really, that's just the way she is. She has that little look, but when she gets there, she's so interesting. And you brought up before, I have this one book where I got people to sign autographs in with the posters. And I'll never forget when I asked her to sign it, she's like, oh, what's this? And she was turning through the pages and looking at the book on her own. And it was just, I have this book now that Martine Beswick turned almost every page and was just looking at it for 10 to 15 minutes. And, you know, and and she's talking about different Hammer movies that she's seen and different actors that she worked with when she's seen their posters and things like that. And that's something is priceless. You know, she was just like, just like a fellow fan. You can't beat that. So if you ever have a chance to see her, go see her. Enjoy the time. She's, she's there for the fans. She just enjoys it. And as long as she's having fun talking with you, she'll keep talking with you. If she stops having fun with you, she'll move on. <laughs> That's absolutely wonderful. I mean, 
I'm a big fan. I suspect I'll be an even bigger fan after I listen to this interview. Once again, Stephen, very, very envious of you. Well, thank you. And, and I'm just lucky where the people say yes and they let me talk to them. My whole thing is by doing that is to allow people that don't have an opportunity to meet or talk with them to get a chance of what it's like to hear those stories coming from them. And that's the whole point. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to talk about connections now. This section is where I vainly, preposterously try to tie the movie that we're discussing in with the wider Hammerverse, seeing how it might have connective tissue with other films from Hammer. Now, One Million Years BC is one of Hammer's genuine remakes, but it had no official sequel despite the other subsequent prehistoric epics which followed, which uh, we will get to. So I'm going to make hopefully an unexpected connection to another property in the Hammerverse by returning to my favourite scene, which is when Tumac and Luana are hiding from the less-evolved troglodytes in the cavern. Now, accepted theory used to state that modern humans came into being when Cro-Magnon Man split from his more hirsute but intelligent neighbour Neanderthal Man. Our more warlike ancestors apparently wiped out the more peaceful Neanderthals, but some like to theorise that perhaps isolated colonies of them survived through to modern times in remote areas of the Earth. Now sightings of hairy hominids are regularly reported from regions such as America's Pacific Northwest, Russia, Malaysia, and of course the Himalayas. And it was here that Peter Cushing, as Dr. John Rolleston met his own cave-dwelling man-beasts in Hammer's 1957 film, The Abominable Snowman. I'd also like to mention that Raquel appears in 1969's The Magic Christian as Priestess of the Whip, along with another guest star, Christopher Lee. Lee plays the ship's vampire, to all intents and purposes an unofficial cameo for Hammer's Count Dracula. So there we go, Stephen, straining yet again to make connections in the Hammerverse. You somehow are able to pull it off every time, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's like, I, if I could just turn this way, that way, I got it. And it, it always works. It's almost like you should put a book out about it. <laughs> Thank you for that. I will just quickly mention that uh, this is inspired by my book, Info Gothic, an unauthorized graphic guide to Hammer Horror, where I frequently, in a graphic form, make connections between films in the Hammerverse. Speaking of merchandise, Stephen, it's your turn again. Well, there, there's really one piece of merchandise that comes to mind with this movie, the poster of Raquel Welch. The poster. The one before Farrah Fawcett's poster. The one that every young man, woman, whatever, had that poster that loved Raquel Welch. My elder brother had the Raquel Welch poster in his room. So I remember seeing it growing up and I was just thinking, why would he have this picture? And again, when I was a real young lad, why would he have this picture of, you know, like, okay, like cave women. And then as you get older, you start to have a different understanding of why your eight, your, your brother is eight years older than you had that poster in his room. <laughs> so I think that poster was everywhere for people, whether they saw the movie or not, they all knew Raquel Welch. I know in America it was a huge phenomenon. I think in the world it was a phenomenon. Its impact on popular culture just, just can't be overestimated. My wife Rose's favorite film is The Shawshank Redemption. And even there, 
this poster plays plays an important part. And I'm really tempted to talk more about it, about the circumstances under which that particular shot was taken. But instead, I'm going to talk about my offering for our merchandise section. In 2014, Karina Longworth, who I referenced before, launched her own podcast, You Must Remember This. And this covers lesser-known Hollywood stories from the first part of the 20th century. Written, narrated, and produced by the ferociously clever and witty Karina, it has become one of the world's top film podcasts. The Washington Post called it knowledgeable and laceratingly funny. And I want to urge, nay, big listeners to go to episode 19, Raquel Welsh, From Pin-Up to Pariah which came out in October 2014. Now, it not only gives a fascinating insight into the career of Joe Raquel Tahada Welch and the many challenges she overcame both personally and professionally, but it also offers a wonderful focus on one million years BC, particularly, as I said, on the circumstances under which this particular image was actually taken. It might be fairly tenuous to call a podcast merchandise, but this episode is so good that it actually begs to be an extra for a future Blu-ray release of this film. I've never heard it, so I'm going to try at least at episode 19, correct? Episode 19. It's, it's an absolute must-listen. I think it does count as merchandise. The good part is it's a merchandise you don't have to pay anything to see. exactly exactly now um we're already at our final thoughts so would you like to go first Stephen? sure i think we talked about really enjoyed the movie and the only thing i think i forgot to to bring up was robert brown Mm. you know playing uh, kuba who was the the original leader of the rock tribe and of course the, the father of tumak but the reason i wanted to bring him up the James Bond connections. Yes, yes. Because he played M, the later movie, starting with Octopussy, going all the way through to License to Kill. But I think he did a great job because he starts off, he sets the tone for the tribe. There's a coup of his one son taking him out, but he thought he was dead, but no, he comes back. Hobbled, but he comes back and no longer able to take power. And then when Tumac comes back, he now he has both his sons there and you know, the one... Of course, Tumac takes out the other son. It has his own little coup, and now he's a new leader of the Rock Tribe. And then, of course, mm. that constant power struggle going on there. Constantly, it's like a warlord type situation where you yes. seem to have this. That's the one thing we didn't bring up is that the not only is the one tribe, the Shell Tribe, more intellectual, more more with humanity, but their their setup seems to be more sophisticated and different in how they run mm-hmm. things. There's lots of great actors and actresses in this movie. A lot of great Harry Housen effects. We talked about how the animals are getting constantly mistreated by these <laughs> tribes. And really, I mean, come on. They, they, they showed they can grow a garden in one of the tribes. I mean, come on, people. Eat some plants. Eat some veggies. <laughs> I think that's an important message. I'm going to go on to my final thoughts. Like bear baiting, punch and Judy shows, and the Star Wars holiday special, I think One Million Years BC represents a long, out-of-vogue style of entertainment from a bygone age. The Caveman film had a brief resurgence in the 1980s with Quest for Fire and Clan of the Cave Bear, but now it really only exists as entertainment for younger audiences in animated films like The Croods. 
Harryhausen's genius is timeless, and the Rakhal Welsh poster is immortal. And that's more than enough for fans like you and I, but for most people I fear that this film nowadays might come across as as remote and unrelatable as fossilised dinosaur bones to the world today. That's not to say that the film doesn't have merit. To me, it absolutely does. And I wonder if, if one way for people who aren't necessarily fans to key into it would be to maybe treat it like opera or ballet, where you are entering an art form that maybe you're not usually exposed to, but you have to be in a particular frame of mind to, to really appreciate it. I agree with that. I think I think we talked about earlier, the pacing is... is different than it is now with modern movies and but i think the one good thing this movie has going for it is it can play almost anywhere in the world because it has a made-up language and people are going to understand it extremely good point and uh, i don't know if this is true but maybe that contributed to why this uh, film was such a colossal success for um hammer films back in the day right Stephen, we've reached that point in the episode where we are going to decide what we're going to talk about next month. So you have your die ready? Yes, I do. And the roll okay. is six. Ooh, new genre. <laughs> Ooh. Now six is what we refer to as the experimental 1970s. Now, Stephen, it's absolutely irresistible not to pick a particular film because we've been talking so much about the wonderful Martin Beswick. I think you can guess what it's going to be. I think so too. Could be a, a, like a, a little bit of duality in this movie. It could have, you could almost say it has a split personality. We're talking about Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde, starring the wonderful Martin Beswick and Ralph Bates. Oh, for excellent. And I think, listeners, you're, you're in for a treat. Absolutely. I can't wait to talk about this film. I actually can't wait to watch this film again. Now, if all goes according to plan, we will have some other voices weighing in on, on this particular film. We really are looking forward very much to you joining us next month. And we've even received some feedback, Stephen. Yes, we have. We received um, a voicemail from Richard Chamberlain. Hey, Steve. Hey, Alistair. This is Richard from the Classic Horrors Club podcast. Kansas City cinephile and monster movie kid. Okay, shameless plugs over. Let's talk Hammerama episode one. I absolutely loved it. Now, I've told Steve this personally, and I will say this now officially. I love the way you two carry on a conversation. Listening to the episodes you did over at Monster Kid Radio late last year, Really, I guess that was kind of like the pilot, right, for what we now have with this new kind of show within a show. And there's so much I love about this. The length, perfect length, a great conversation. You guys kind of, there's there's no fluff, as Steve recently told me. He said it's it's really just getting to the core of the conversation. And I think that's really kind of refreshing. You guys have decided, you know what, we're just going to get right to it. Let's have a conversation about one of our favorite Hammer movies. And right out of the gate, you guys have knocked it out of the park. Um, I love the the start of the show, the way that um, Alistair kind of does a capsule recap of the film with some great music playing in the background. 
And of course, you know, the great music of Reber Clark, what a wonderful way to, to kick off episode one. Um, there's just so much to love. You guys just, you know, are hammer experts. Um, Alistair, you've got a, a voice that was made for podcasting. So here we are in, in 2022. We're closing in on what? How many years has podcasting been going on? I guess about 16 years into this podcasting phenomenon. And we have a newcomer. Um, I absolutely love it. Steve, you have been doing some amazing work with the Diecast Movie Podcast. And now this show within a show is simply fantastic. Anyway, congratulations. And I look forward to listening to many, many more episodes in the future. Take care, guys. That was really, really quite moving. Thank you so much, Rich. And, and, and we're, we're absolutely delighted that you enjoyed it. And, and obviously, coming from a seasoned, experienced podcaster like yourself, that, that is high praise indeed. It's again, and thank you too, Rich. I mean, we're trying to do the best we can. And obviously, for you, we're off to a really good start with episode one. And hopefully, we can keep that momentum going and maybe even get better. I think I think there's definitely scope for that. <laughs> yes, there's always room for improvement. I, I think we're oh, our yes. hardest. I think we are our own hardest critics. Rich is, of course, one half of the superb Classic Horrors Club podcast, and we were doubly blessed to get some feedback from the other half. We also had mm. feedback from Jeff Owens in an email, and Jeff wrote, "Steve and Alistair, congratulations on your new podcast." I was eagerly awaiting the first episode and was thrilled that we got to host the world premiere of the promo. I was um, not disappointed. The show was a high-quality production that didn't tarnish our reputation. Uh Haha. Of course, Jeff does the Classic Horrors Club podcast. As I told you offline, I enjoy the running time. This makes me a hypocrite, but it's nice to listen to a podcast that's under three hours. In fact... It was the perfect link for my walk home from work on the day it was released. I was particularly, I also particularly liked the unique features you introduced. I love regular features that helps define a podcast. I can't wait. Oh, you're going to like this, Alistair. I can't wait till you roll that die and hit my hammer sweet spot, the early 70s. <laughs> perfect. It's often maligned, but when I look back at Hammer in its entirety, why Horror of Dracula is a fantastic movie, I didn't grow up with it. I grew up watching Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde taste the blood of Dracula and others at the good old Enid Drive-In. Good luck with the podcast. May it live long and prosper. My ears and heart are anticipating the next episode. Oh, thank you so much, Jeff. And I think you obviously are liking this die roll. (laughs) That's wonderful, Jeff. Thank you so much for taking the time to to write in with that wonderful feedback. And we know that next month we're going to have at least one happy, satisfied listener. Once again, everyone, the main purpose of this podcast is for Stephen and I to try and keep it short and to try and offer opinions and insights and probably misconceptions (laughs) that you won't necessarily hear anywhere else. So join us next time for Dr. Jekyll and...
Hammerama is a proud part of the Diecast Movie Podcast. <laughs>